my claim to fame is being friends of the people who sold their house to Yo-Yo Ma. I just love the cello, so I'm expecting great things from you. No pressure. No pressure at all. But thank you for leading us, uh, getting our hearts ready for worship. Uh, I'd like to welcome you to the warmest, friendliest church in Red Bank. And just a few announcements. Um, there's still time to sign up for the True Church Conference, see Isaac. Next week, we have a fellowship lunch. It's breakfast for lunch, so hopefully you like steak and eggs for breakfast. There is no youth choir practice today, and you can see that the ladies' Bible study starting tomorrow. I believe Barbara Challies is going to be leading that. Pray for safety in traveling, and the men's are doing theirs on Tuesday morning at 6, and I believe that's all the announcements. Thank you, Andy, and hopefully it's comfortable in here. I, try, I keep trying to turn down the temperature to make sure you stay awake, but I get complaints about it being too cold, so I'll let it be warm today. In the back, we have a, uh, a, book, a couple more of these bookmarks for our fighter verses. If you want some of those, if we run out, let me know, and I'll print some more. But each week, we put the fighter verse in your bulletin, and here it is uh, located here. Uh, really a, a, a verse that's easy for us to memorize because most of us are familiar with it. And by the way, I appreciate uh, Addie, Bailey, and Paul working on our social, social media uh, publications as they put some things out. Be looking for that. Uh, they'll, each week they'll put a, a brief explanation of whatever our verse is of the week, and so you can look for that if you haven't found it yet. But this one comes from John chapter 14 and verse 6. I've quoted this numbers of times, but it's really helpful to think about it and to meditate on it. When, when Jesus says this I am statement, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Simple, straightforward, but very significant and worthwhile for us to think about. And that's really what I, I call to do with these uh, fire verses. Yeah, memorize them if you can, that's great, but certainly spend time meditating on them. I'll give you a moment to think about God's word now in preparation to worship Jesus Christ together, and then I'll lead us in prayer. I'll give you a moment to, to spend time thinking on his word and preparing your heart to worship Christ, and then I'll pray for all of us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you with a grateful heart. We're thankful that we do have breath in which we can praise your holy name. We're thankful that all of us ostensibly gathered here truly know this truth, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. It is through Christ and Christ alone that we could come to truly know you. No, you're not in just a theoretical way or intellectual way but actually in a real personal way we definitely need you and we need to find our refuge and solace in you 
I pray, Father, that you would grant comfort to your people for those who need comfort, might have gone through various difficult times. We have many that are out today that are sick, but able to tune in through the media that we have now. What a blessing that is for them to, to be a part in some capacity. And I pray for each one as well. I pray, Father, that we would not be discouraged, though we might face various difficulties, troubles, tribulations along the way, but we would find our trust in you, that indeed you are the solid rock amongst the sinking sand that seems to be really much part of our culture. And so I pray, Father, that our confidence would be increased in you. As we gather together, Lord, we desire to praise your holy name. <clears throat> we desire to lift up our voices to do that. And I pray that our songs of praise will be a sweetness and pleasure in your ears. As you have called your people to, to gather, and as we have beholden who you indeed are through Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. I pray, Father, that also that for each one of us that we might hear the words of Christ, what Christ would say to his church even this day. For those that are outside of Christ, may they come to know Christ now. For those who are waning in their conviction and in Christ, I pray, Father, that you would give them great faith. Give all of us great faith. May we mutually come alongside one another to build each other up in that which is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ, amen. Good morning. Well, the Lord's Day is certainly a blessed day, and we're going to learn another hymn, uh, another psalm this morning, Psalm 92. If you didn't get an insert in the back, uh, maybe someone can get one for you if you raise your hand. Um, but Psalm 92 teaches us how to enjoy the Lord's Day. And it's, if you want to grab your Psalter, we're going to read through the verses just so we're familiar with that, and then we're going to go to our text and read um, Psalm 92 from our Bibles, but if you take our our Psalter out and let's just look at it, you know, we spend the week uh, in our daily lives engulfed and entrenched by the wicked, but it's an opportunity for us as believers to assemble together on the Lord's Day and to uh, renew our hearts and our minds around the Lord's promises of his sovereignty, as we'll read about his, um, his uh, judgment on the wicked, as well as um, just... Uh, the blessing on the believers. And so we're going to look at all of that and we're going to, again, be taught by Psalm 92 uh, how important it is, uh, the Lord's Day is to the Lord and how us gathering together is important. And so if you look at your Psalter here, let's look at verse 1. I'll read it out loud. You can just kind of follow along. It says, It is good to sing your praises and to thank you, O Most High, showing forth your loving kindness when the morning lights the sky. It is good when night is falling of your faithfulness to tell while with sweet melodious praises, songs of adoration swell. And so that first verse just talks about how it's, we should sing the Lord's praises day and night, morning, noon and night, all day long, not only uh, on the Lord's day, but all week long. Amen. Verse 2, you have filled your, our hearts with gladness at the works your hands have wrought. You have made our lives victorious, great your works and deep your thought. You, O Lord, 
on high exalted, reign forevermore in might. All your enemies shall perish, sin be banished from your sight. Verse 3, but the good shall live before you, planted in your dwelling place, fruitful trees and ever verdant. Verdant means green or alive or uh, invigorated. So fruitful trees and ever verdant, nourished by your boundless grace. In his goodness to the righteous, God his righteousness displays. God, my rock, my strength and refuge, just and true are all your ways. So let's turn to our our scripture here in Psalm 92. We've got it on the back of our bulletin, or you can look up uh, in your in your Bible. Psalm 92, and again, it's titled "The Psalm, a Song for the Sabbath." And I'll read it for you. It says, verse one: It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. To the music of the lute, a lute resembles a guitar, and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. Lyre was a, like a, it had a sound box, it had three to 12 strings, kind of looked like a lap harp, I think. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn. That's a symbolism for strength or um, you see that throughout scripture, the horn of my salvation, or in this case, but you exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. Again, fresh oil, they would pour on horns or, or things that they wanted to have glisten in the sun to, to show uh, invigoration or life again or kind of re-energizing. So again, you have poured o- over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Let's have the girls play through it once for us, for our Psalter. I think it's to the tune of Hark the Voice of Jesus Calling. And then.
good. Let's take our hymn books and turn to number 149. Praise him, praise him. Psalm 146 says, I will praise, sing praise to my God as long as I live. 149. church. It is a blessing to be here fellowshipping with you all. Today our scripture reading is coming from the book of Acts. We're looking at chapter 23 verses 12 through 35 and that's found on page 932 in the Pew Bibles. Last week we read about a trial that Paul was subjected to uh, under the legal authorities, the political and religious authorities brought him there, and the Lord rescued him from that uh, legal scheming that they had put on. Today, we'll read how the Lord rescues Paul from the illegal schemes to murder him. 
and how even corrupt Roman officials, unbelievers, uh, can and will be used to accomplish the Lord's will. Amen. Acts 23, verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priest and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by oath, by an oath, neither to eat nor to drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one what you, that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it is dis and when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers to also, uh, also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he is from, and when he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Father God, we humbly approach you at your throne of grace with the confidence that comes from our relationship in Christ Jesus. Yes. We can boldly approach you there, Lord, and we can look for you with hope. We can look for you to comfort us, to protect us, to ensure um, our future because we have a confidence in what our future looks like, Lord God. You have promised us eternity with you. And for that, we are overwhelmed and entirely grateful, Lord. We thank you for the blessings that you have showered upon us here in this 
temporal life, the blessings of family and community, the blessings of fellowship in this church and in this uh, city. Lord God, we thank you that you are providing these things generously to us, even though we do not deserve them, even though we sin time and again and turn back to those uh, inclinations of our flesh, Lord. But we ask that you would continue to renew our minds, continue to uh, work the work of salvation or the work of sanctification in our lives, Lord God, as you are turning our hearts more and more towards you, turning our minds more and more to be like your son. We thank you for the blessing of the Holy Spirit as he is filling us in this place and in our daily lives, Lord God. We ask that you would continue to turn our face to look to you in those times of difficulties, in those times of struggle, that we would not lean on our own understanding, but that we would trust, Lord God, in those times when we attempt to take matters into our own hands, Lord, that you would remind us gently uh, but firmly that you are our Father, you are our hope, and you are our salvation, Lord God. We ask that you would <clears throat> provide for this community, these these people, in all the ways that we need it, Lord, and, and those physical needs, Lord, and, and the rearing and uh, nurturing of our families, but also, and most importantly, in those spiritual needs, Lord, we, uh, we need you every day. We need to grow in you. We need to grow in hope. And we thank you that you are providing that. We also thank you for the children of this church, the way that you are nurturing them. You ask that you would give us the strength, uh, the parents the strength, the community the strength to uh, preach the gospel to these little ones who have not yet come to have a relationship with you. And that we would also preach the gospel in everything we do, everywhere we go, throughout our daily lives. We ask that we would be a light and a beacon to this community, to this world, that we would ex uh, execute the great commission that you have ordered for us, Lord God, that we would not do so uh, timidly, but we would do so boldly, Lord. We also ask that you would uh, bless the church uh, communally, Lord, here in this city, in this state, in our country, throughout the world, that you would prosper it, that you would allow it to go out and, uh, and bring many sons and daughters to glory. Yes. We thank you, Lord, for those partners that you have given us in this task, those missionaries that we support and um, know of, Lord, that you would strengthen our, our minds to pray for them, that you would strengthen them with the encouragement of the fellowship that you have given us in the Holy Spirit, Lord. And we thank you for the teaching that we were about to receive. We ask that you would bless our hearts with this teaching, that you would allow it to remain in our minds, allow it to remain in our, uh, and be incorporated into our lives as we go into this week. And we ask that you would uh, use our uh, fellowship here, our community here, uh, to further your kingdom, Lord, for your kingdom uh, deserves all recognition, all glory, all honor. You are great and greatly to be praised. We thank you for all of these things. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. amen.
Let's take our hymn books once more and stand and turn to number 28 as we continue to think about Psalm 92, verse 4. It says, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. So number 28 sings, To God be the glory, great things he has done. Let's sing 28 together. We will glorify. Revelation 5.13 says, Blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb. We will glorify. Yeah. 
Blake, Amber, and ladies in church as well. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll look at that in just a moment. This hymn is packed that we just sang in worshiping Christ. If you notice here, the call is to glorify Him. We'll be giving you an idea of what it means to glorify Christ. And I'll just give you a brief, essentially reflect the beauty of his divine perfections in your own life as Christ has worked in you. And, and notice one other section as we sang through it, I focused on myself, that we will worship him in righteousness, that line two. We will worship him in perfection. And that's what we're going to talk about today from Hebrews chapter 10. I invite you to turn there, Hebrews chapter 10. We're going through the book of Hebrews. If you haven't been with us or haven't been with us in a while or just tuning in online on our live stream. The book of Hebrews, we're going through it essentially verse by verse and we're, we've arrived at chapter 10. And I will admit this book can be a bit challenging. It's challenging for me to spend time and Think about, well, what am I going to talk about here without confusing you? Because I can get confused as well. There are a lot of references to Old Testament passages, some of which we may not be all that familiar with. So we'll have to go look at those from time to time. There's also a number of, of warnings that are given in the book of Hebrews, particularly a warning against Apostasy, that is falling away from Christ. This book really was addressed to the audience of Jewish Christians, hence Hebrews. In their particular circumstance, <coughs> they were in danger of walking away from Christ and returning to Judaism. And you might even ask as you consider it, well, that doesn't really apply to me. I'm not a Jew and I don't have any interest in returning in going to Judaism, let alone return to it. I'm not a Jew. So what relevance is it for me? I think that can be a healthy question to ask when you look at Scripture, and that is ask, how does it actually apply to me? So you need to look at the text. And remember, there's but one interpretation. What was intended for that audience? However, many applications. So you get it right, what it means, what it meant to those who heard it, and you will find it to be cross-cultural and in time never out of relevance. It's always relevant. I think it, it helps them to understand and, and, and look at what's going on here, ultimately from the very beginning to the end, thematically, it talks about the superiority of Jesus Christ. Specifically to them, it was over Judaism, which was essentially the, the philosophical faults of their community or their culture, their ideas and ideology, He's emphasizing that Christ is superior to all of that. And certainly that would apply to everyone at all times in all ages. As we've noted in our meditation verse where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, 
and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. This is why we preach Christ and Christ alone. Another aspect, however, uh, needs to recognize that he would say this phrase that Christ is, is better than. And, and that's repeated a number of times, and he will specifically address those issues in which Christ is better than. I would argue he is better than anything. There is only one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. And he's going to emphasize that mediation that Christ provides more than any other author of the New Testament. What you're going to find here is much in this book about Christ, who is the mediator. You'll call him the high priest or the great high priest. I think it's helpful also to recognize how this letter is being communicated to the original audience. And I've said before, and this is review, but I would see this essentially as a sermon. Hear it that way. In other words, and I'll often say the writer is the preacher. I do think it is Paul's sermon recorded by Luke. Not everybody agrees with me on that. That's fine. It is, however, an exemplar, and we've demonstrated that, of first century preaching. It would have been written down and recorded in a way inspired by God for us to have indeed today. If you'll note how he closes this letter, or I would say a sermon, in 1322, he says, he finishes this off by saying, I appeal to you, brothers. Okay? That's his audience that he's imagining preaching to. I appeal to you, brothers, with my word of exhortation that I've prepared for you briefly. <laughs> okay. Preachers are kind of long-winded, and that's then and now. That's true. In other words, it is a word of exhortation, as he calls it. He does also, as I mentioned, have a number of warnings along the way, which can be confusing. Remember in chapter 3 and verse 13, he calls on the people in hearing this message for the first time to do that as well, to exhort one another as it is called today, that you would not be hardened from the deceitfulness of sin. That's a message we can all hear and heed and encourage one another. Recognizing this format, the audience to whom it's given, and this sermonic aspect to it, we arrive at chapter 10, where we are now. Chapter 10 really begins the final part of an exposition of the new covenant from Jeremiah 31 all the way back to chapter 8. From chapter 8, he introduces it, and at this point you can look at it if you wish. He kind of gives this long introduction, emphasizes some aspects of Psalm 110, and then now he wants to get to the heart of the matter and that Christ is indeed the high priest. Chapter 8, verse 1 begins as Now the point that we're saying, took him seven chapters to get here, the point that we're saying is this. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, a true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Remember, we talked about the true tent, true in the sense that this is what the symbol 
pointed to. This is what the tabernacle was all about. The reality, who is Jesus Christ, and that's his whole point, that Christ is the mediator, and he is the mediator on high. He ascended on high to the throne, throne of majesty. Verse 6 in the same chapter, he says, Christ then obtains a better ministry, and that's that idea that Christ is superior or better. He'll use it a lot. He is, has one that is much more excellent than the old, as the old covenant he mediates. It is better since it's enacted on better promises. We're going to talk about one of those better promises that he gets to in chapter 10, where we are today. Drop down to verse 8. He says in the same chapter, he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'm going to establish a new covenant. And that's where I'm saying that's here he begins talking about the new covenant in chapter 8. <clears throat> I'm going to establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's his audience, the Hebrews. And he's quoting from Jeremiah. I'm, this is what they were looking forward to, and this is what he's saying that Christ has fulfilled and accomplished. I'm going to establish a new covenant that isn't like the one that I established with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. He's talking about the old covenant, we would describe it, or the Mosaic covenant. He said, they didn't continue. I, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. This concern has to do with their, it, it isn't a means by which you can be perfected in the presence of God. And that's what we're going to talk about today, this perfection that is in Christ. He says, for this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I'm in verse 10, Here's the distinction, and this is why it's better. I'm going to put my laws into their mind and write them on their heart. How did he give the law under the Mosaic Covenant? He read it on tablets of stone. It was external. They did have to conform to it. They were called to and required to, and yet they disobeyed. So God was going to do something unique, and that is he was going to change the heart. He was going to take out that heart of stone and dead, unresponsive, and give it a live, responsive heart. That's the point of the new covenant. And then everything is going to change. Then you'll have a unique relationship with God, a real, genuine relationship with God. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. And he goes on, he says, they'll not teach one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. This is talking about a personal relationship with God. You would really know God genuinely. They're not going to have to say that because they're going to know me because of this divine work that I do in their heart. It changes the disposition of who they are. They now can hear. They can now see. They now have a affections for God. Everything has changed. All of them, from the greatest to the least. He says, and, th and this, is the, this is the headline here, and you'll see it repeated in chapter 10. Uh, I, I know I'm long-winded, but he took seven chapters to get here, so bear with me. I will, here is verse 12, I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's a better promise. It's fulfilled by Christ. 
and only by Christ. That's the only way you'll be put into that condition. God's mercy that is granted towards someone who has been in rebellion against him. That's an idea of iniquity. I will remember, it isn't that he doesn't know about it. He doesn't count it against. That's what he means by not remembering. Choosing to not hold it against you. And we know this because of Christ's death. And he'll explain this covenant, this new covenant in Christ's blood because he paid the penalty that would otherwise be required of all of us. Now, I'm going to chapter 10. You ready? This gave you the introduction so that you can see the connection here because he's closing this out because it's almost like, well, are you repeating some of the stuff that you've already said? Yes, to some degree, re-emphasizing, but he's going to close with this idea of the, the new covenant that he began talking about in chapter 8, and he closes this out. Notice down to verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, you've heard this before, and write them on their minds. And then he adds, and he expresses it slightly different, but essentially the same. Verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Hallelujah. A better covenant, a better promise. And all of this is accomplished through Jesus Christ. Now, with the time remains, we'll probably only be able to deal with the first verse and note also verse 14. We'll see how it unfolds today, but there is always another week. So bear with me. But I would like to read, since we haven't looked at chapter 10 yet, I'd like to read this in its context going all the way down to verse 18. I want to encourage you during the course of the week to look at it as well, to prepare again for next week. All right, Hebrews chapter 10. It's going to culminate this idea about the new covenant and talk about, and we'll look at the perfection that is in Jesus Christ, who his sacrifice is a better sacrifice. All right, for since the law, verse 1, has but a shadow of good things to come. What are the good things to come? Christ, right? All right? Good things to come. Instead of the true form, and he uses that again, that idea we've already looked at, the true form of these realities, it, the old covenant, could never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year by year, make perfect those who draw near. That's what I'm going to emphasize today. It, it could never make perfect those who draw near. That is, enable you to be in the presence and communion with God. He couldn't do it. Otherwise, this is why Christ is better. Otherwise, verse 2, they wouldn't have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. This is a quotation from the Psalms. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come 
to do your will, O God, as it is written me, it written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said, Above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are all offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, that's the old covenant, to establish the second, and that's the new covenant. And by that, and that, I'm sorry, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I'll be talking about sanctification, see the connection. We may not get to verse 10, but notice this. We'll be sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. And every priest then stands daily at his service offering, repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, and, and here's that word again, perfected for all time, those who are being, and here's the other word, sanctified. Okay? And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I'll remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I could not portray the glory and beauty of your divine perfection in the sacrifice of Christ. But I pray that your words would be mediated by the Holy Spirit to speak to each one as we need to hear. Call sons and daughters to faith in Christ now. And for those of us who are truly in Christ, I pray that you would strengthen us to truly live like Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen. This sacrifice that's mentioned here of Christ, it's juxtaposed against the sacrifices on the Old Covenant. It, it's better because it is through Christ that anyone could be possibly brought into that presence of God. There are a number of things in this text in which he draws attention to the perfection of Christ, the payment accomplished by Christ, and the pleasure, really, that God would receive. I'll see if I can just unfold this idea of perfection today and focus on verse 1, and we'll probably tie it in with verse 14 in just a bit. But nevertheless, look at verse 1 again. And I want you to see the phrase, to make perfect... Those who draw near. Perfect. It's a cliche for a, an excuse for failure that you know all too well 
you've heard it, and maybe you've said it. Well, no one's perfect. And in a practical sense, that, that, that is true. Even among the redeemed. We struggle with that part of unredeemed humanity that remains until we are rid of the flesh and stand alone before God. We call that the glorified state. In the resurrection, you can see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, our body has to be changed or transformed. Under the new covenant, our, our heart, our affections have been changed. We've been given a new disposition, a new attitude, new affections that does affect our actions, but yet we struggle in what the scripture calls the flesh. We deal with that. And we see it just in our life and in, in all that we might have to go through. The biggest change in standing before God would that all sin would be done away with, and it must be. There will be a correspondence to our resurrected body and the body that we have now, but it, it will not look the same. It, it will be glorious. Paul tries to describe it. You can look later in 1 Corinthians 15. It's sort of like a grain that goes into the ground, and, and then it comes up. Imagine for us a corn stalk. They probably weren't talking about corn, but... We, we can. We've seen it. Little grain goes in one, goes in the kernel into the ground. It's buried, and then it comes up. It corresponds, but it's different, isn't it? A stalk comes up, and then that stalk gets so high. And then on it is not one single kernel. It's multiple and several ears if it's a healthy stalk. It corresponds, but it's uniquely different. And guess what? It's a lot better, isn't it? It's, it's, it's more abundant. It's flourishing. That's the idea of it. And, and, and this is Christ's work. When sin will be completely done away with all of the consequences of the curse, all of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the loneliness, all of the bitterness, all of the antagonism, or whatever goes on, it'll all be done away with. And ultimately, death will no longer reign. That's the end. That's the result. That is the perfection that is in mind, that, that is accomplished by Christ. Christ's ultimate work will be in perfecting the redeemed. He doesn't save a sinner to leave him in futility, even in this life, but flourishing. And for that which is to come, it is really unimaginable. This, this phrase here, to make perfect, or I've called it making perfect, it, it, it is what Christ has accomplished. It is the completion of salvation. It includes not just, as I said, justification, that is declaring a sinner righteous before God, positionally, but also in actuality, we would call that glorification. The very beginning, 
to the very end. See Romans chapter 8. You will need to be perfect to stand in the very presence of God. And the preacher of Hebrews, I'll just, I'll just note a few verses. You don't have to look them up, but they are a bunch in Hebrews if you want, or just note them. This idea of the perfecting work of Christ is woven through this sermon from the very beginning to the end. I'll just start in chapter 5, where he talks about it, and it's translated in my ESV text, but it's all the same Greek word. He calls it maturity. He says, it is for the mature, 514, to be trained to distinguish between good and evil. That is the perfecting work of Christ, to be able to have an understanding of that which is right and that which is wrong, good and evil. It is the work of Christ in the heart of the believer. He would tell the, his congregation in chapter 6 to, to, to leave those elementary doctrines, that is the symbols of Judaism, which pointed to Christ, who is that one who is perfect. It leads to perfection in Christ. In chapter 7, he would remind them that through this Levitical system, that perfection could not be attained, 7.11. In 7.19, he says once again, the law makes nothing perfect. In other words, it doesn't have the ability to change the heart, let alone the, the, the body of the sinner. 7.28, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later, then the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is Christ in a state of perfection. Chapter 9 and verse 9, it talks about the gifts and sacrifices. Again, cannot, and here it's used as, cannot perfect the consciousness of the worshiper. We've seen that in chapter 10 too, haven't we? It can't accomplish it. It can't change the thinking, if you will, of those who would engage in those rituals. We see it in 10.1 of our text. We see it in 10.14 of our text as well. And then I'll jump to 11.40 just to show you. This is throughout the entire sermon where he says, God has provided something better for us that apart from us, they would not be perfect. In other words, all who are standing in perfect righteousness before God from the Adam to, to whoever is the last of the elect to live, all of them are made perfect through Christ. And then chapter 12 and 23, as it finishes up to this assembly of the firstborn, he's speaking of those that are in Christ, who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That is who you are if you're in Christ Jesus positionally. And the call here, then, is to do so in practice as well, based on that. It, it is essential because without perfection, you're not going to see God. God is a holy God, and no imperfections will stand in his presence. His, his perfection, 
His perfection is what we call his divine attributes. And we might say that they are beautiful in the sense that they are perfect in every respect. This is one of the reasons when people actually counter God, and we read about those encounters in the scripture, they're what? They're afraid. And what has to happen? God has to calm their fears. Whether it's through an angelic being or God himself, fear not, right, is the response that is given. Why would you fear? Because God is holy. That's why. Looking at perfection from our vantage point is very frightful and very foreign. We haven't seen it. Oh, we've seen what we imagined to be perfect and right, but it's not. It's always short of perfection in our perspective. Perfection, the thing I think of as illustrated might be this and why you couldn't look at it. Don't do this, because you will be destroyed, your eyesight. But if you were to look at the sun, don't, kids. Um, don't, don't try this at home, right? Don't look at it. But if you know if you did, you would, it would burn your eyes. You just couldn't do it. And that's the imagery I think of in looking at God from an imperfect state and looking at his perfection. There is no other way than to stand before that holy and perfect God unless you are perfected. In other words, unless you are also made righteous. And this is what Christ does in that text. And what a beautiful statement is. Did you note it? He makes perfect those who draw near. The, the ability to be able to have a relationship with God, to commune with God, to be with God, you will need to be made perfect, perfectly righteous. And how will that be accomplished? Through a better sacrifice through Jesus Christ. That Old Testament system, even though it was established by God, and I'll talk hopefully next time about why in the world would he bother doing that, but, but he's repeated several times, that is not going to bring about perfection before God. That will not do away with sin. It has to be done away with. And God has to materially change the very character and nature of who you are. God has to enable you to be in his presence. This is what God does. Look at verse 1 again. These rituals that they engaged in and by the way, any other religious practice, religious system, not trying to be critical or negative here. I'm trying to be truthful, to speak the truth in love. There is only one sacrifice that will bring about the perfection that is required to be before God, and that is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. No wonder, remember we said, no man comes to the Father but by me. Why? You will have to have the atoning work of Christ. You may be a good person, do a lot of good things, engage in all kinds of religious rituals, and you know what? Most people, I think, are really better than me. I don't really think a lot of myself, and I appreciate publicly how much accolades I get, that's for sure. But if you really know me, you would say, you're not that great of a person. And I'll say, yeah, I know. God is gracious and merciful to me and changing my heart. 
you, you should have known me before you got a hold of my heart. It was a whole lot worse. But, uh, and hopefully we're working on that. But this is what God does. But notice verse 1 of chapter 10. He again emphasizes that any other system, and in their case it was Judaism, they can never bring about that perfection. What they were, and they did have value, we'll talk more about it later, they were the shadow, he uses that term, that points to the substance. What's the substance? Christ. They, they are the good things, he would say, to come. The good thing is Christ, who is the, the perfect thing. They were good in the sense that they pointed to that which is good to come, that which is also uses the term true as opposed to a copy or a form of it. He is the true form and not the copy. He is the reality and not the ritual. That is Jesus Christ. All of these in, uh, religious activities, even though they were um, ordained by God for them to do under this covenant, they were not intended to bring about perfection in the life of those who would engage in them. And we know historically, what did they do? Well, they took those rules, counted them up, came up, I think, with 614, if memory serves me right. But you ask most Jew, Orthodox Jews, they'll tell you precisely 613 or 14, something like that. Any case, didn't matter. They added all kinds of other stuff to it as well. And you see Jesus confronting them in the gospel saying, those are the traditions of men. This is what you said about this and that. <coughs> it wasn't enough to have all kinds of rules and regulations. They had to add more to them. You know, the law does what it tells you. And there are good aspects of the law. And you need the law. It's helpful to have the law. But ultimately, it just shows that you are guilty because you're a law breaker is why. No, perfection couldn't be achieved by keeping the law because no one can. And so it says to be a shadow there of the good things to come, verse 1. It can't perfect those who draw near. And in context, this perfection that he's talking about, uh, there's another term that you're familiar with, and I'll spend the rest of the time perhaps talking about that, and drop down to verse 14 to see it. His sacrifice, okay, the death of Christ, he perfects all for all time those who are, note this, being sanctified. Th that's just another way to express this idea of perfection, sanctification. And it is a process, two aspects to it. One, in salvation, we would say, positionally, you are perfectly right before God. And this is why Paul can write to all these various churches, and he calls them, what? Holy ones. Hagias. It's, it's translated saints. Okay? A saint isn't someone who achieved great accomplishments. A saint is one who has the righteousness of Christ. You know why I'm a saint? Because of Christ. His righteousness given, or we would say imputed to me, makes me positionally absolutely perfect. And that is a concept that, that Christians would need to know. That's what he's explaining here. 
And then it goes on to this idea of being sanctified because there's a growth in this virtue. That concept is included as well. We might call it spiritual maturity or a perfecting aspect in the life of the Christian. Not that he is going to be sinless in this life until the flesh is gone and you're standing before God, you will be absolutely perfect. But there is a progress in the life, and we, call, we also call that sanctification or being made holy. That is, becoming more in practice of what you're like in position. That's what we mean by that. The sacrifice of Christ is better because it accomplishes that. You say, well, how, how am I going to straighten up my life? And how am I going to fix all of that? It is through Christ. It is Christ who saves. It is Christ who sanctifies. And it is through his single sacrifice that this is accomplished. Look at verse 10. It is through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It isn't accomplished through your many pleadings, okay, and, and, and your merit along the way. It is Christ's work. He is the one who sanctifies the believer. He's already talked about this in chapter 2, about, in noting Christ, that it is Christ, and I'll just read it for you from 2.11, if you want to note. He who sanctifies, that would be Christ, and those who are sanctified, those, are, those will be those that are believers in Christ. They're called sanctified. All of them have one source. That's Jesus Christ, the sanctifier. It is God. And then it will go on to say, then he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Why? They, they are brought, we are brought into the family of God through Christ. Now, I read a little book, and I recommend it to you because it's pretty brief. wouldn't take you long to read it. It's on sanctification. And for those who are into social media, I put a link in our Facebook website so you can find it there. Download it for free if you wish. Uh, it's from J.C. Ryle called Sanctification. I think he did a good work on that, and I'd like to quote some and, and note some of the points that he makes concerning sanctification to help us better understand what this means. What is this work that Christ is doing for the believer in, in, in being sanctified and particularly in how it relates to this life. Ryle, who, if you didn't know him, he's um, a 19th century bishop in England. He was. That's back when they used to preach the gospel over there. A lot of good works in that period of time. Read Spurgeon as well. But nevertheless, here, here's what he said. Sanctification, he describes it, is that inward spiritual work which the Lord Jesus Christ works in a man by the Holy Spirit when he calls him to be a true believer. He not only washes him from his sin, this is the integral part of salvation, right? I think he's right. It's not only, it's not only the cleansing from sin, sanctification, it must be, that, that's positionally, in his own blood, that is, it's accomplished by Christ's sacrifice, or his blood, but he also separates him from 
his natural love of sin and the world and puts a new principle in his heart and makes him practically godly in life. Do you get that? This is the whole imagery of the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah, isn't it? I will give them a new heart. I'm going to write their laws internally, not externally. That is, I'll give them a new disposition in life where they have this desire to obey God and to follow him, not because of what other people might see or others might say, but from the heart. There is a change in disposition and in time right now in the world in which we live. I like the phrase, it separates him from his natural love of sin and the world. That's our natural disposition. A love of sin, a love of self, what everyone else is doing. And what changes it? It must be a change of the heart internally. God uses various instruments along the way for sanctification. Certainly his word. And this is why if you come here to worship Christ, we do a, if you haven't been with us, we do a lot of reading of this. Because Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. The, thy word is truth, John 17, 17. This word of God is alive. It's powerful. It's dynamic. It, it cuts quick to the very soul. It can get to the heart of the matter. So we read it in various ways. We even sing it. Thank you, Blake, for singing God's word today. We pray it and we proclaim it. And that's what we're doing here. It's, it's integral to all that we do in your own life. I encourage you to meditate, to think, and to hide God's word in your heart that you might be sanctified in life. He instrumentally uses his word. He'll also use discipline in life to bring about sanctification. We'll talk about that in Hebrews 12. You'll find that just as a father would discipline his children, so God would discipline, not um, inflict judgment on them, but discipline, or in other words, correction to bring you about in the right way. <clears throat> He'll even use affliction in this life, physical suffering. It, it isn't any fun, but it can be helpful to wean us away from the culture and our natural disposition, if you will, towards sin. And you can see uh, some reference to that, for example, in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, I think it is, where Paul talks about his own suffering, that God uses to bring about sanctification in his life and in his circumstance, it was to diminish his pride and increase his humility so that God's grace would be on him. I would also say that godly influence is a means by which God uses in sanctification, just the influence of other godly people. You'll find an example of that in 1 Peter 3 where un, uh, un where believing wives uh, are to live godly before even their unbelieving spouses so that they can see their good works, their, their works of righteousness. And God will, may use that as a means in their life to bring about salvation and sanctification to, uh, to both. 
Ryle goes on to say, the Lord has undertaken everything that is peop- the people's soul require, not only to deliver them from the guilt of their sins by his atoning death, but from the dominion of their sins by placing in their hearts the Holy Spirit, not only to justify them, but also to sanctify them. I think he's right on that. This is who Christ indeed is. He is one that he says he would purify a people for his own name, Titus 2.14. He died and uh, and took on our sin, 1 Peter 2, 24, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This living to righteousness is what we're talking about in the, the practical sanctification. Colossians 1, 22, that he reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the concept of sanctification as well positionally before God. All of this is Christ's work. Now, Ryle in his book, and and I'll see if time permits, I'd like to just go over 12 marks of sanctification. I think he's right on this, and I'll reference some verses along the way to demonstrate that fact. So you can listen in. Marks of sanctification. He would say, sanctification is the invariable result of that vital union with Christ, which true faith gives to a Christian. What he's saying is that it is the result of your union with Christ. And I think I've mentioned that already. It isn't a work of the flesh. It is a work of the Spirit and it is a necessary result, it will occur because he's changed the very heart and nature of the believer. And therefore, sanctification is evidenced in the life. Jesus would use the analogy of vine and branches, didn't he? He said, if you abide in me and I in you, you will do what? You'll bear much fruit. Fruit that he's speaking of is that spiritual work of his grace. In Galatians, it talks about it as love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, and these kinds of things. The, The very fruit of the Spirit is because the nature of the believer is changed. They have a vital union. Number two, he would say this this outcome is, and it just kind of follows on this, which I agree, this outcome is inseparable from regeneration. There, there are some that teach an idea that you, you're regenerate, you come to Christ, and, and, and you're saved, and therefore you're, you're not going to spend eternity in hell, but at some point in your life, you, you need to then make him Lord. And to object that, biblically, they'll call that lordship salvation. I don't know. Scripture is really clear about that. It says that we are to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. <laughs> because he is. And I don't make him anything. 
And if you read through the book of Hebrews, the way he's presenting Christ, he's presenting from the very beginning how superior he is to everything else. He is on his majestic throne, even right now, when he made propitiation for our sin. He, uh, he sat down on the majesty on high. How, how, how much more could you be than, than Lord? That's who he is. He is indeed Lord. And to recognize that, that is the, it, is a, in, it is the consequence of it that then Christ as Lord and changing our very heart. This is then the new disposition of who we are. John would say in 1 John 2.29, Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. What he's talking about is not just doing good things. It's doing those works that are produced by the Holy Spirit in the regenerate believer. That's what he's talking about. In fact, he'll go on to say in chapter 3 and verse 9 that no one then born of God makes a practice of, of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot, and here's, here's the phrase to help you with it, he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. This is the sanctifying work in Christ. It doesn't mean in this life that you won't engage in sin. It's that you won't keep doing it. If, if you're alive and you're in a body of water out in the middle of the ocean, you know what you're going to do? You're going to keep flapping your arms as long as you're alive. Because you're alive. That's the point here. You'll continue to come and confess your sin if you're alive in Christ. And for sanctification, I think this is really important to understand that you're no longer, in that sense, characterized as a sinner. You're a saint. You're a holy one. Positionally by Christ and working out in practice in your life. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 if you want to, or I'll just read it to you and listen. And I'm clock challenged here. We'll see what we can get through. But I do want to make a few points. We may have to pick up. And What I'm saying is, in the life of the believer, our focus in the perfecting work of Christ is not only to make you positionally righteous before God, and therefore you can consider yourself a saint, but it's also a practical work in this life, and beloved, that's a great evidence in your own heart for your own self to examine what is the disposition of my life? What, what do I really want? In 1 Corinthians uh, 6, Paul addresses the church here at Corinth and he makes this blanket statement in verse 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That goes along with our theology. We understand that. You're not going to be unrighteous and stand before a right and holy God. You'll be made righteous through the blood of Christ. That's how it's accomplished. So here's a category. You're either righteous in Christ or you're unrighteous. That's the default position is unrighteous. And he says, don't be deceived. Now he's picking on practical lifestyles and manners of natural affection. He doesn't list them all, but he gives some example. Sexually immoral. Adulterers. Idolaters. Men who practice homosexuality. Thieves. Greedy. Drunkards. Revilers. Swindlers. 
None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. So now he's looking at their what? Their practice in life. Right? What he's saying is, this cannot be a characterization of your life. There needs to be a change. Because integral to salvation is sanctification, the very perfecting work of Christ. Now, some might have it, it might be very slow, and a lot slower than we think. But, but the call here is to examine your own heart to recognize that this is no longer the real desire that I have. I don't want to do any of this or anything that would violate God's law because I want to flourish and I don't want to fail. God has communicated and revealed his law both in, our, in his word, in our heart, and in creation, in all the ways that he has revealed the, that truth to bring about human flourishing and to disobey him. All, all that does was bring about failure. This is a new disposition of heart. The, to, and in our culture today, you'll hear a lot of people, and I understand why they're trying to do this. They're, they're just trying to all get along. You know, but, 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 but there's no such thing as a Christian homosexual, I'm sorry, or even the most bizarre transgender now they're getting into, and just all this deviance. No, it isn't, it not, but not even immoral, okay? Not idolaters, and you can think, well, I don't sit there and bow to an idol. Okay, the idols here focus is, is primarily about self here, adulterers, drunk, okay, if I said, well, I'm a Christian drunk, most of us would know that's, that wouldn't work. I'm a Christian thief. Okay, no, that doesn't work. <clears throat> we know. See, your, your life and lifestyle can't be characterized that. You say, but, but it is. But, so, what, so what do I do? Come to Christ. He will cleanse you from all your sin and all your unrighteousness. Jesus Christ will pay that penalty. And beyond paying the penalty, he will actually change the disposition of your heart where that is not the desire of your heart. You'll have a different disposition. You know what your desire will be? Should you engage in any of those activities anymore? I don't want to do that. I don't want that to be characteristic of my life. Notice here in verse 11, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do you see the change of disposition in the heart that we're talking about here? This is, this is a change of heart, a change of direction. And this is why you're no longer characterized. Now, you, you may have had trouble with any of these on this list and many, many more. But that's not who you are in Christ. You know who you're in Christ? Perfect. A saint. A holy one. And I really think by knowing that truth positionally, it may help the very practice of your life too, to actually know who you are you're not an orphan. You're not someone who just comes from a broken home. You're not a castaway. You're a child of the king. And nothing in this life, temporal life, really would ultimately matter, would it? 
because you're a son and daughter of God. And the call then is to then recognize that and work in your life in, the, in such a way that that is evidenced in your life. Again, he's talking theologically here in verse 11. That's, that's who you were. But you were, you were washed, sanctified, and justified. He's just using these terms to indicate that all of that has been cleaned away and covered. How? By the blood of Christ. All the, all the infractions, whatever they might be, they're all washed away in the blood of Christ. That is, Christ's death has paid that penalty in full. And then the second point here is then you're, you're sanctified now. Think of this, clean. You put, you put an, an article in the, in the dishwasher or the dish pan, for those of you still washed by hand, uh, and you clean it off. You wash it. And then when it's done washing, you, you, you just don't throw it in the trash. You put it in the cabinet because it's sanctified. It's, it's clean now. If it gets dirty again, you wash it. And Jesus says, you can come and confess your sin. And he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The disposition of those that are sanctified recognize that. It, it isn't that they might get some dirt splashed on them. They've been clean from the inside out. And if a speck of sin and dirt get, clings to them, they don't like it anymore because they've been sanctified, you see. You've been set apart. That's what sanctification means. You have been made holy, so now you've got to take it off. I'll try to do this one more cheap example. <laughs> I got this suit. This suit is sanctified, if you will. Sanctified in the sense I set it apart. In fact, when I get home, I'll put it on a hanger, and then I'll put it in a bag because it's something I wear for special occasions like proclaiming God's word. It might get dirty, but it isn't going to stay dirty. <laughs> I'm going to get it clean as quickly as I can. And if you're in Christ, beloved, you have been washed, the sins are gone, and now a new state occurs, and you have this desire to be clean, and the good news is that Christ will do that. And the final theological term that's mentioned here in, in this text, 1 Corinthians 6, is what? Is justified. That is, Christ declares you righteous. What a great truth. Declare, declares you righteous because he is washed and he is sanctified or set you apart and eternally declared righteous. This is what it means for him to bring about sanctification in the life of the believer. Well, actually I had 13 more points, but our time is gone. You'll have to come and we'll pick this up next time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, what a great 
incredible privilege it is for us to be in Christ. And I have fumbled around a bit to talk about that better sacrifice and what you have granted to us in Christ Jesus. I pray that you would make it known. The state of mercy that awaits and for those that would confess Christ and the state of mercy that has been fulfilled by us who have. Our iniquities and our sins are remembered no more. Made perfectly holy and righteous in Jesus Christ. And I pray out in days ahead that we might work that out. Because you're working in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, let me give you a moment to think on these things. Respond to Christ in any way he has spoken to you. If you need cleansing of your soul, Christ is willing now to do so. Take a moment. Father, what a great privilege it is to have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. May we cherish that incredible gift and live in accordance with your work in and through us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Number 24, oh, worship the king. The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Lift up your heart, <clears throat> lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors.
that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Lord, we thank you, O King, for coming into our hearts. For we ask it that you would bless us now as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>